Today's message, the Adventus, the uh, Latin word for coming or arriving, really what's at the heart of that is what Paul said in Ephesians 3.8, that the grace was given to him to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. And that the heart of Advent is this idea of grace. Grace that comes to us doesn't expect us to come to it. Grace that arrives, because like any gift, if it's truly a gift, and it's not something that you say, oh, I, I owed you that gift, but no, I, I just gave it to you out of the goodness and kindness and love in my heart that overwhelms me to give you a gift, that's what the, is at the heart of Advent season. It's grace arriving in our lives, and we'll see in the story today with Mary, and we'll see in the next few weeks, and consider how grace arrives in her life, and also then we can ask, how does grace arrive in my life? Because I would say at any season of our lives, season of the year, it's good to stop and ask that question, especially if you may be feeling um, you're missing out, Um, life isn't what maybe you wanted, Uh, maybe your spirit hasn't been one of thankfulness lately. Uh, It's sometimes hard to just like conjure up gratitude, but yet when you take yourself to the source of gratitude, that you've been shown grace then it gives you something to be thankful for, doesn't it? And what gets us closer to being thankful than when we look at how grace arrives in our life? When we actually say, like, look at how many things I've been given. How much favor, how much blessing, how much kindness has God shown me? And that is really the story of Advent. How grace reaches us all in our situation right here, right now, today. So follow with me as I read our text, Luke 1, 26 to 38, and we will trace the outline of grace as it arrived in Mary's life. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth, who has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word And the angel departed from her. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear the word of God to us this morning that he would measure out abundance amount of his grace to us today. Well, speaking of the arrival of gifts, I was thinking maybe, um, what is the largest gift ever given? I'm not talking about the most costly, but the largest in size. And uh, sure enough, as I Googled that, 
came back that on June 17, 1885, a 250-ton gift arrived in 200 boxes to New York City's harbor, Lady Liberty, a gift from our friends over in France to help the United States prepare to celebrate its 100-year anniversary as a nation. Largest gift ever given in size, probably not in value, and certainly not in the same value that the gift that arrived in Mary's life as we read today. Because the gift that came to Mary, the grace gift that was delivered to her on this day was priceless. And its beauty, imperishable. And its duration, eternal. And that we all know is the greatest gift of all, the gift of Jesus Christ. And what we want to see this morning for our own edification in the faith, our strengthening of the faith in Christ this holiday is first to look at what, what is at the heart of this gift? How does it come And then even in that, we will see Mary's responses and what we can learn in our own hearts is following her lead, if you want to call it that. So there's something to learn of the grace of God this morning for us all today, and there's something to learn of how we respond in faith when we are given a grace gift. So first, let's see that grace comes from above. It arrives into our lives. We don't work our way, earn our way towards it. That's what we see in the first couple verses from 26 to 29, that grace arrived. It came. That's the advent. It came to Mary even before Jesus came. The, the dawn of redeeming grace, as Silent Night sings, didn't arrive on that Christmas day. It arrived on the day that Mary was given a message that Jesus was going to come by the arrival of the angel Gabriel. Luke is the uh, writer of this gospel, and Luke is into giving us an orderly account of everything that happened. So there is uh, a reading of this with an eye of faith to the miraculous, to this idea that there are angels in this world, and there's a God, and there's a heaven and hell, and there is a, a this life and an afterlife. And yet Luke, who if you just flip back a page to the first four verses, is saying, hey, um, I'm going I'm to compile an account of everything that's happened, and he, he writes this a few decades later, among us, among who? The believers. Uh, Luke was a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul, and that's why we get the, or the, um, the account of uh, Acts from, written by Luke, as well as this gospel according to Luke, and really, you should read them together. Um, so there's your reading assignment for the month of January, that after you finish reading through Luke, read Acts. I remember I was hanging out with a friend of mine a couple years ago when I went back to uh, Los Angeles uh, to continue my studies. And uh, this guy, Kai, I mean, you know you're dealing with the smart dude when his name is a word in the Greek. And so me and Kai are hanging out and he was top of the class and I was studying the book of Acts. And um, I was, he had told me that he was writing his dissertation on something in the book of Acts. And I was like, well, I'm studying it and trying to uh, preach it to a group. Um, Kai, do you have any recommendations for understanding the book of Acts? And um, just did one of these. And he's kind of a shy guy, Kai. No pun intended. The, uh, Kai, the shy guy, goes, um, if you want to understand the book of Acts, you need to understand the book of Luke. I was like, oh, thanks. So now I got to go back and study the book of Luke to understand the book of Acts. But really, they come together and, and they actually make up from this one vantage point, this perspective of Luke the physician. We know that from Colossians 4.14. Uh, Paul describes him. Um, it makes up a quarter of your New Testament, which is pretty fascinating to think about. 
that a fourth of what we know of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ and then the birth of the church comes from one person's what? Look at Luke 1, 1 through 4. An orderly account is one who went and interviewed the eyewitnesses and servants of the word, and he investigated everything carefully. Uh, when I, so when I'm talking about the virgin birth and the incarnation, and immediately our minds can go to miraculous, supernatural, come on, I, I'm down with the facts. Well, you're getting a guy who's, who's exactly like you then. He was out for the facts. He, he wasn't uh, just saying, hey, whatever everybody else says I'm going with. He says, oh, uh, you say that this Jesus was um, the Son of God and born to a virgin? Uh, who is she? What was her name? I'm going to go track her down. I'm going to interview her. I want to make it, uh, I'm going to investigate this thing carefully, verse 4, so that you, the reader, may know exact truth about the things you've been taught. And so when you look at verses 26 to 29 about grace coming down, it's the intersection of the vertical, what is coming from heaven, with reality on earth. Because he, he's giving facts of dates in the sixth month. Six month from what? Oof, what he just got done talking about in uh, verses 24 and 25. Uh, Elizabeth. Wife of Zacharias, who was now pregnant for five months, he's, he's calculating dates. He's saying, look, we, we can trace this back to times on a calendar and also places on a map. He says, the city in Galilee, and not just any city, it's a city called Nazareth, because Nazareth, what good comes from Nazareth? It was a podunk town. It was a nobody town. It was, um, it was in the pecking order of things. Uh, those people that lived in Jerusalem... They were the Judeans who looked down on the people that lived around Galilee, the Galileans. And in Galilee, the Galileans looked down on Nazareth. And so he's, he's detailing where this is happening and then who it's happening to. Both Mary and Joseph. And he gives you really interesting details of both their lives. He was a descendant of David. And we know that if you read Matthew 1 in the genealogy, which focuses the story on Joseph's response. Joseph's lineage was royal lineage, even though he wasn't uh, by blood going to be the father of Jesus. As an adopted son taken into his family, Jesus would have had the royal lineage to be a king in David's line. Well, then you get a lineage over here in Luke chapter 3. If uh, we see a change in verse 31 where it says Nathan, the son of Nathan, the son of David. Over in Matthew, it says the son of Solomon, the son of David. So David had a lot of sons, but two of them in particular in these genealogies. One, after uh, David has different sons, uh, one Solomon, and that's the story in Matthew, and that traces him through Joseph, the father, adopting Jesus. And then the other one traces Jesus' bloodline through Mary, his mother, in Luke chapter 3. And that comes not through Solomon, but through Nathan, the son of David. So on both accounts, both adopted by Joseph as a son and both in his own bloodline, he is in the Davidic line. So Luke wants you to know those details. And he wants you to know this detail because he repeats it twice. Mary was a virgin engaged to a man. And so he sets the scene for those skeptics out there that only want the facts. Well, he's given you some facts. But now here's where faith comes in. That in the same way we can read all those names of people and places and times, we can read this. Heaven comes down to earth. God sends Gabriel, and there is grace coming down, a gift coming down. That Mary wasn't sitting around waiting for something, asking for something. It arrives in her life. And that's how, to answer the question we asked already this morning, how does grace arrive in your life? 
Well, if it's grace, if it's truly a gift, and, and all good things, as James 1 says, are gifts that come down from our Father in heaven, the Father of lights, we have to see them as down from heaven to us as grace gifts, not something that we do down here to earn. Grace comes down as a gift. This angel arrives in this nobody place to this nobody teenage girl. She's, she's in some ways contrasted in chapter 1 with um, when Gabriel makes an appearance six months earlier talking to Zacharias, the priest, verse 5. And uh, we even get the character quality of Zacharias. He was righteous in the sight of God. He walked blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. Yeah, you, know, you could start reading there and say, oh, that's why grace arrived in Zacharias' life. Well, then how does that square with Mary, who you know nothing about? Did nothing to deserve this. Other than it was just God who sent Gabriel the angel to her life. And he doesn't just arrive in her life sent down from heaven to just stand there and say nothing and he, he comes with a message for her and it's a message of grace. Grace comes from above, it arrives in her life and, and what's the first words she hears? They're words of grace. Greetings, favored one. Uh, that is a, a phrase in the Greek that's using the original root word of charis, which is the word for grace. Some of you name your daughters charis in our church because it means grace. It's a beautiful name, it's a beautiful word. It's this idea of favor, of blessing, and so really, um, it's, it's like he arrives on the scene and it says, grace to you, graced one. I mean, it's just full of grace, this initial experience that Mary has on this particular day. The only other time this word blessed one is used in the New Testament is in Ephesians 1, 6, talking about how we were uh, blessed by the kindness of God through Jesus Christ, adopted into his family. To the praise of the glory of God's grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. That word freely bestowed in Ephesians 1.6 is the only other time this idea of favored one is repeated. So it's blessed one, favored one. Are you getting the point of how grace arrives in our lives? It comes down from above. And it's not something you earn. It's not something you work for. It's something that God in his, the kind intention of his will bestows upon you. And to add to this wonderful, gracious greeting, he says, the Lord is with you. He tells her that the uh, high point of all this, it's not just a, a wonderful greeting from an angel who, um, if you rewind the tape to Daniel chapter 8, which we studied last year, the other appearance of Gabriel in your Bible, is when he, he arrives on the scene with Daniel, and Daniel's this good and godly man. Daniel faints in the presence of this angel. And so maybe um, after 600 years, Gabriel learned, I need to show up with a really gracious greeting and to remind this person, I am not here with a message of judgment. The Lord is with you. Well, what does that tell us about Mary? Well, it tells us maybe what Luke left out that he told us about Zacharias and his wife, Mary was a righteous woman. She had a relationship with God, but it was by grace through faith. And that's why the Lord is with her. And this is a, an opposite take that has been taught in the Roman Catholic Church for centuries that the reason for Mary's favor and blessing and grace is because there was something great about her, that she was sinless. And that's why she deserved favor. That's the uh, false doctrine of the Immaculate Conception. 
The uh, largest Roman Catholic church in North America in D.C., the Basilica of the National Shrine of the Immaculate Conception, has a giant painting, a, a, a mosaic work of the Immaculate Conception. And it says this from Post Pius IX, the most blessed Virgin Mary was from the first instant of her conception by a singular privilege and grace granted by God in view of the merits of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the human race, preserved exempt from all stain of original sin. Because of Mary's immaculate conception, because of her yes to God, we have been redeemed and given the promise of eternal life through the merits of Mary's son, Jesus. Well, that flies in the face of the clear teaching of Scripture that the only person that was ever sinless was who? Jesus Christ. And if she needed to be sinless for Jesus to be sinless, well, then I, where does that end? Doesn't, wouldn't Mary's parents need to be sinless for her to be sinless? And then you have to back it up to there, to the next, and to the next. And No, that's how grace comes in. It just arrives. It arrives unannounced and undeserved and unmerited. And it's God good favor to give it. Now, maybe this teaching came about. There was a translation uh, from the original languages into Latin in the late 300s by St. Jerome. And he translated uh, greetings favored one um, in the Latin to uh, Hail Mary, full of grace. And that phrase, full of grace, would, would give this idea that she was already what? Righteous because she was full of grace and had no sin in her life, which is not the truth. There's no miracle with Mary except what God was going to do through her. There's no hailing Mary for a sinless life. That grace had to come down to Mary. It did not have to be earned by her. Now, I am using some language here, immaculate conception and Hail Mary, that some of you are like, when is this jock going to use a reference to football? The Immaculate Reception, Franco Harris, the Hail Mary Pass, Staubach to Pearson, both of those have their roots here in 128. They have nothing to do with the, the message of this sermon, but since some of you know those are the only illustrations I have, the best I could say is in the same way, both of those passes had to be heaved up and grace had to what? Float down into Franco's hands before it hit the field. And Pearson had to catch it even after the ball went through his hands. He caught it on his hip. Both miracles on the football field, but pale in comparison to this miraculous moment. And it wasn't because Mary had earned anything. It's because God was gracious to her. So what's her response and what can we learn from Mary this morning when, when grace arrives in our lives? How do we respond to it? How did she respond in verse 29? She was very perplexed at the statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. Well, Mary's response, um, it's, it's, it's a sober-minded response. It's undeniably rational, which maybe would go against the grain of what you would think, wouldn't it? I mean, if an angel shows up and talks to you, uh, you might not respond perplexed and pondering. You would maybe freak out uh, or faint like Daniel did or go back to chapter 1 of Luke Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel and fear gripped him. I was amazed reading about Mary this week, just thinking on verse 29. Very perplexed um, is a word for, for being surprised, astonished, blown away. And then pondering is a word for, it's an accounting word, for taking, adding something up. And uh, notice the object of both of those responses. She's perplexed at the statement and pondering what kind of salutation this was. 
It says nothing. She's perplexed and blown away that an angel shows up, and she's pondering why he's there. No, Luke's account, and my guess would be, the only person he could have interviewed that knew how Mary was feeling and responding would have been who? Mary. It's my guess at it. She says, yeah, I was, I was perplexed at what he said to me, and I was just kind of adding up and pondering, like, wait, blessed one and favored one, and the Lord is, what is this all about? And what I was saying at the beginning, when you, when you calculate, when you try to think about how does grace arrive in your life, it should somewhat reflect this sobriety um, of Mary. This, I'm, I am adding up all the things happening around me right now and trying to come to a conclusion. It's not saying her emotions weren't involved. Clearly, even being perplexed and astonished has that. But that's not the driver of this. She is blown away by it, but immediately goes into like, something's going on here. What is it? Did she know the Old Testament? You'll find out next week when we talk about Mary's song. She sure did. What's happening when when an angel shows up with a message? Well, anytime you see an angel show up with a message in the Bible, it's for a very big turn of events. It's not some small thing. That's why it's so pithy and unbelievable when false teachers out there today say, hey, an angel came and talked to me while I was making my morning coffee. You know, told me... um, what car to go buy today? Really? Heaven had to stop and say, send a messenger down for that. When in the scriptures, and it's very, it's an infrequent occurrence. We're not saying that angelic activity doesn't go on. But it's for something that's life-changing. And the plan of salvation. And it's not something that um, the person then tries to take and turn around and immediately promote themselves with. What does Mary do? In humble fashion, she's pondering this. She's taking it all in. And what I think that calls us to this morning is the same. When we see the intersection of heaven with earth, when grace arrives in our lives, the first step of faith for any is to take an account of what you know and truly consider what's going on according to the facts of the Scriptures. There's a God. There's a devil. There's a heaven and a hell and angels and demons. And there's things seen and unseen. All this would be what Mary is pondering right now. But what we can't miss is that it's showing that she is taking this moment seriously. It stops her in her tracks as grace should stop us in our tracks. So when grace breaks into your lives, do you have eyes to see? To take it all in? To even to slow down enough to try to receive it. We've been trying to say that leading up to Advent the last few weeks. Why we went to Ephesians 5 and we talked about what? Watching carefully how you're walking, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Walk in wisdom. All that plays into this. That's the spirit-filled Christian life. It's not just living off of every whim and next kind of surge or feeling or sense I get that God's up to something. Okay, if he's up to something, have you stopped and opened the word up and prayed about it and said, what, what really are you trying to teach me right now, God? If I think grace is arriving in my life, where does it square with your word? It comes from above, first and foremost. But then it comes by a message. It moves from just coming from above in this next section that grace, when it shows up in Mary's life, and when it comes into our life, it comes with a message. 
It declares what God has done for us. If grace is a gift, then the message about grace is going to be first and foremost something God has done for us. Declares done for us, not declares what we need to do for him. So the angel says to her after he sees her perplexed and pondering, don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You're good with him. It wasn't enough for Mary just to know that the Lord is with you. But maybe in him noticing the perplexity and the state that she's in, she also needed to know that God is for you. I mean, there's a lot of people today that want to say they're spiritual but not religious and think that God is out there and in some transcendent form. And yeah, he's with me and I can feel him and he's around me. But what divides the world from just people that either believe there's a God or not a God is to know whether that God is for you or against you. And the only way we know, according to Scripture, that God is for us and not against us is what? Romans 8. What can separate us from the love of God and Jesus Christ? Nothing. Nothing can separate you from His love. In Christ, that's how the world divides out. Not between believers in God and unbelievers in God, theists and atheists. Within the theists, within the people that say, I believe there's something bigger out there than me. Okay, if He's out there, is He for you? I don't know, when I do a bunch of good things and good things happen, it seems like it. That's karma. Do you also count when bad things happen to you that you must have done something bad to deserve it? Or you just always want to tally up the good? How's that work out? But to know that God is for you has to have its roots in a message of grace and a message that you don't bring yourself into it. It comes to you. It comes to you from above, and it comes to you with a message. What's the message that the angel had for Mary? First, you're good with God, and then he gives her the details of the message that he came to tell her. The greeting was just, oh, favored one, blessed one, God is with you, God is for you. But now I want to tell you that you have found favor with God, and it's going to particularize itself in this, verse 31. The first part of the grace message to Mary is, you will have a baby, which is always awesome news which is always a gift of God's grace. As the scripture tells us, children are a blessing from God. Okay. You will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you'll name him Jesus. Part one of this grace message that comes from above is uh, you're having a baby. But would that be good news to her in the situation she's in? Well, you have to know something about a virgin being engaged, being betrothed. Um, the equivalent of, of that would be actually marriage today in our culture. As in the formal union, the commitment of that man to that woman was in the betrothal period. The only reason they're not together yet because there was a time for now that this parents, and, and it was um, an arranged marriage back in these times, which now that I have five kids, I'm totally for. I'm all about. I'm just waiting to preach that series how I get to arrange all the marriages in my kids' lives, and if you want some help, I'll do it for the whole church. I just matchmake. Love it. Shannon and I's favorite thing to do when we were uh, doing youth ministry together was um, go home each night. Hey, what do you think of so-and-so marrying that person? I mean, we just jumped right to that, not even date, because you know, that's what it leads to. But anyways, a side note. Um, if Mary is betrothed to Joseph, now they're in this waiting period where it was the, on the integrity of the man to go and prepare a place, build a home, have a career, be able to support. The deed is done, as in it's formal. That's why if she were to be now exposed as being pregnant and it's not the Joseph, she would be subject to Old Testament law of being stoned. 
Or as we learn about in Matthew 121, Joseph being a righteous man, loved Mary and wanted to put her away silently, divorce her. So when she is told that you're going to conceive a son, I mean, right there, her head would have been spinning because if she's doing the timeline, she's going, people are going to count these months and know we're not married. We're not, it's not formalized yet. We haven't had that week-long wedding ceremony. And I might be in trouble here. So what's a, 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 a message of grace at first might be throwing her off. So uh, now he has to add another layer to this great message of grace. Not just you're having a baby, but um, what kind of child will this be? Verse 32, he'll be a great child. Not just any child, he'll be great and he'll be called the son of the most high. Uh, this is um, the greatest child ever born. Unqualified greatness. He's just great. He doesn't need to be a great this or a great that. He is the essence of greatness. Now, I know we all, when we hold that baby up and we say, this is going to be an average kid. No. We say this is going to be a great kid. You know, and his years go on. He's going to be a great kid. He's going to be a good kid. He's going to be average. C's. You know, what? we don't do that. We think immediately this child can do anything. Well, Jesus sets the unreachable standard because before he was even born, he was destined for greatness. And he was the epitome of it. Because he was the epitome of greatness, he'll be called the Son of the Most High. And he was called the Son of the Most High throughout his life. He was identified as the Son of the Most High by demons even, when he would cast them out. What do you have to do with us, O Son of the Most High God? He was known for this. Why? Because he wasn't just a good teacher. He was the greatest teacher there ever was. Unequaled in his wisdom and his insight. He wasn't just a good leader. He was the greatest leader there ever was in the impact he had on the people's lives around him. He wasn't just a good miracle worker. He was the greatest miracle worker because he could heal you both in body and soul. There was no equal to Christ to match his greatness. So there's nothing even needed after he will be great. You just put a period there. But then he will be recognized for this and associated with a title from the Old Testament that goes back to Genesis 14. First time it's used. When Abraham meets Melchizedek, king of Salem, who was a priest of the God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, and blessed be God Most High, who's delivered your enemies into your hands. What's this idea of the God Most High? It's, it's the supreme and sovereign one, the God above all heaven and earth. So Jesus will be great and will be called the one who is sovereign and majestic over all creation, everything in heaven, everything on earth, everything seen and everything unseen, all creation, every creature, everyone will bow to him as the sovereign over all. Now that's a great child. And that's good news to Mary. Whatever may have thrown her off that you're having a baby, you're having a great baby. And then, third thing about this message, you're having a royally great baby. He's not just going to be kind of showing up and connected loosely to humanity as a whole. He is actually coming there in verse 32 as fulfillment of what? The throne of his father, David. Now, Mary would have known her own lineage and Joseph's as well. So sure, she could say, yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, going back a couple hundred years, we're connected to that throne. But God's going to give him this throne. And there hasn't been a leader or ruler in Israel for 500 years. There hasn't even been a word from God for 400 years. Grace hasn't come down. And now all in this one moment, it's the arrival of grace. It's the message of grace. And her son will be royally great. And he'll reign over the house of Jacob forever. That's um, fulfillment of 
the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7. Um, There are hundreds, somewhere in the the mid-300s, prophecies fulfilled of the Messiah in the life of Jesus. Um, I say this, uh, like, not all created equal in the sense that if you were saying, like, if I had to rank, take all the verses that were prophetic about Jesus and what he's going to fulfill, there are some that you're saying, okay, this one in, in the mind and heart of a faithful Jew would really rank up there at the top. You know, if you're, you're saying, like, I had to say, like, where would 2 Samuel 7 fit in? Well, verse 13, uh, this descendant of David promised from God to David, he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Mary would have known 2 Samuel 7. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. I mean, this would, this would be uh, in the top five. With Isaiah 53, Psalm 110, Psalm 2. I mean, this would be one of those prophetic passages that when Mary hears, house of Jacob forever, his kingdom will have no end. It's got to be adding up to her that all that she had known about this coming Messiah and longed for, Emmanuel, God with us, the hope of Israel. I'm going to have this royally great child? Yeah, you are. So how does she respond to that? Verse 34, unabashed sincerity. Mary's response to this amazing news, this grace message from above, how can this be since I am a virgin? Notice she doesn't question God's plan for the child. Like, tell me more uh, about this succeeding the Davidic throne. Like, how exactly is that going to... She doesn't go into that. Notice she also doesn't get into like the... The peripheral details for us, I mean, the one detail, you know, like, of course, when a woman is pregnant, she wants to know, like, when exactly is this due date? I got to prepare the room. I mean, she at least knows that it's going to be a boy so she can start picking out blue. But she's not getting caught up on the who, what, when, where is she? She has one unabashed, sincere, authentic question. It's how. How can this be? She doesn't stop there like Zacharias stopped. And, um, you know, how can this be? I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Well, Zacharias, being a priest who is an older gentleman, should have known, uh, how can this be? The Lord opens the womb. He'd done it for Sarah. He'd done it for Rachel. He'd done it for Manoah's wife with Samson. He'd done it for Hannah with Samuel. So it, it shouldn't have been for Zacharias to question, like, how could this be? I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. God had done that before. Yes, miraculous. Yes, you wouldn't expect Sarah at 90 to conceive. But what does she say? How can this be since I'm a virgin? That's why there, there is no Mary has to stay silent until the baby's born like Zacharias did. She asks a really great question right there. One that there has been no answer for so far in the history of God's people. I'm going to conceive, have this child, this royally great child, but she doesn't ask about the royally great part. She just wants to know, how's this going to happen for me? What's that teach us about what, how faith responds to the message of grace? It responds with sincerity. It's not getting caught up on all the little details of this and that. It just strikes right to the heart of the issue. How, how are you going to do this? How is this going to be possible? For us this holiday season, 
You know, when we ask, how is Advent going to make a difference in my life this year? We can get caught up in some peripheral questions or we can strike at the heart of it, which is the arrival of the Son of God, not just 2,000 years ago, but present day in my life. How's that making a difference for me? Am I sober-minded about it? Oh, we already saw that in her first response, pondering. But are we sincere about it? Or is Advent this year for us, like it is every year, it's a good time for some nostalgia, some sentimentality, our favorite movies, the manger scene, take the kids over to Bethlehem, let them dress up. Is that the same sincerity that Mary's showing right here? Is that why we want to dig into the book of Luke right now? And really ponder the unsearchable riches of Christ? That's what's in Mary's response. I just want to know how this amazing thing is going to happen since I'm a virgin. So let's see the final point, Gabriel's answer. Mary's sober-minded and sincere response leads to the message of grace, not just coming down, not just being a message that she can understand, but grace is going to come to Mary in power. Grace comes with the power to change us. And it would marry, and it does everyone who asks those same questions and comes with the same sincerity. Grace comes in power and has the power to change us. Verse 35, this is the heart of the incarnation. The angel answers and says to her, and this is um, as straightforward as Gabriel can put it, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. For that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. How is this child going to be a holy child? Again, just like Jesus was the greatest child ever born in his own category, he's the only holy child ever born. You know, we all love our little kids. They're such cute bundles of joy. God makes them that way early on, and they're cute throughout the rest of their lives, but throughout the rest of their lives, in our own lives, we look back and see, like, we're not holy. There's only one holy child from beginning to end. But how's that going to happen? It's going to happen by the Holy Spirit coming upon her, the power of the Most High overshadowing her. Um, I, you know, like, I get to do each week, you know, you, you study the passage and you dig into this word. Like, okay, come upon you in power. I got no better answer than Gabriel had. Overshadow, maybe it's just that he's borrowing language when we're talking about something so holy, so glorious. The only thing that overshadowing might borrow from is when Moses asked to see the glory of God and he needed to be overshadowed in the cleft of a rock because he couldn't handle it. The power of God being revealed. Maybe that's the best I could do. I would imagine that Gabriel, when he gets this mission, he was sent to Daniel with a big time message. He was sent to Zacharias with a message for John the Baptist. But when he gets this assignment, Gabriel, you're going to go down and tell this teenage girl she's going to give birth to the Son of God. What do I do if she asks how? Takes out a note card. I'm getting this one word for word. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. That's how it's going to happen, Mary. I mean, you, you, you can try to figure that out and, and break that apart, but really, this is the power of God at work. That's how the incarnation works. It's the power of the Holy Spirit that did it. And you, like through the ages, you can study it and think about it, but how do you put those ideas together of heaven coming down to earth? The eternal word of God, John 1, made flesh and dwelling among us. God becoming man. 
truly God and truly man, like we recited this morning. The best they could do throughout church history with all the brightest minds is just really say the same thing over and over in new ways, but be careful not to add anything to it in trying to elaborate on it, but to by faith take it for what it says. And at the end of the day, verse 37, for the doubts and the questions that could remain with Mary, listen, here's how it's going to happen. The, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you in power and I know it sounds outrageous and it doesn't add up with all the other barren women in the Old Testament. Nothing's impossible with God. That's the final line Gabriel gives her. The question is, was that enough for her to respond in faith and obedience? We'll look at verse 38. Her response should be our response to grace in our lives. Unqualified surrender. Mary said, behold, the bond slave of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. Two amazing phrases in that line. Behold the bond slave of the Lord. That's, that's not the word that would be used normally for the word slave, somebody that is taken against their own will, forced into slavery. The bond slave is the one who gives themselves over to serve another person. No resistance, no reserve, no holding back. It says, I will belong to you. And by belonging to you, my master, what you say I will do. Unqualified surrender and submission in Mary's response. And that response didn't earn her anything. It was a reflection of the faith she already had. It's the fruit of her faith. That when she is told something so incomprehensible, something that even can have difficult implications in her life because she doesn't know how it's going to turn out with Joseph, she could say, hey, if God is in this, and if this grace message has come down for me, and it's the same God I love and know and serve already, then I'm okay with it. Does that sound like your faith? I'm all yours, God. I'm your slave. I sign over my rights. Whatever comes with your word over my life, I'm in. That's how faith responds to grace. It believes in the power of God. That nothing's impossible with God. You know, later on in, in the Gospel of Luke, and then it's, it's repeated in Matthew and Mark as well, and it's, it's this message. You hear that Jesus say this same thing, that all things are possible with God. I know sometimes we can take that, and uh, people twist it, you know, to try to get their own thing they want out of it. But that, see, that, what's wrong with that? Oh, nothing's impossible with God. I want to get this thing. I want to achieve this thing. Well, sure, it's all things are possible with them, but they're probably not probable because do you know the will of God to know that's what He would want for you? You don't. What do you know God wants for you? Well, the only time Jesus repeats this idea in those three, God, or recorded in Luke, recorded in Mark, recorded in Matthew is this, Luke 18, where the rich young ruler comes to Him and He's not willing to have unqualified surrender to follow Jesus Christ. And the disciples are perplexed and pondering. When Jesus says how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they hear it and say, then who can be saved? Jesus said the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. Salvation is an impossible thing if you think it requires anything less than unqualified surrender. All of you committed to all of Him 
because of the grace that he's shown you, not for anything you've done to deserve it. Grace is God's unmerited favor coming down in a message with power. Like Mary, are you willing to receive it? Is your heart fully committed? It looks, maybe it looks and sounds different in the ways we might respond, but at the heart of it, it's surrender, it's submission. This time of year, you see those Salvation Army workers outside of stores, their founder, William Booth, who uh, gave his life to the gospel, and he took serious the call to care for the least. He was asked near the end of his life how he kept on going, how he did it, and he said, I'll tell you the secret. God has had all there was of me. There have been men with greater brains than I, even with greater opportunities. But from the day I got the poor of London on my heart and caught a vision of what Jesus could do with me and them, on that day I made up my mind that God should have all of William Booth there was. And if there is anything of power in the Salvation Army, it is because God has had all the adoration of my heart, all the power of my will, and all the influence of my life. That's another way to talk about what Mary said in verse 38. The unconditional submission and surrender of your will, your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength. That sounds like what it means to have a real relationship with God. Throughout the whole scripture, love Him with everything you got. So I ask you this morning, do the waves of God's grace come crashing onto a humble heart of yours this morning? The first wave of grace that it comes down to you? Are you willing to sit with this idea that you don't earn it? It has to come to you. And as you're sitting here, can you deal with the second wave of grace, that it comes to you in a message? It comes to you in the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It comes to you in a message of power, that third wave of grace. That you may be sitting there and say, I believe it has to come to me. I believe it's a message. But how can it change me in the situation that I'm in? How far from God I feel? It's because it's a message of power. It's a message to transform you. But it has to first be received from a humble heart like Mary's was that, that says, I am nothing. God is everything to me. And so whatever he says for me goes. So the first step of faith for some of you today is to come to Christ. And lay aside whatever it is you think you need to be or to do to present yourself to him and say, I've got nothing to bring to him. He has everything to bring to me. And I believe it by faith. And it's not an irrational faith. It's, it's in all the same facts that we've been sitting under today, the message of the gospel. For those in Christ today, you still can find yourself in a hard spot this season. So, does grace come to you the same way this morning as it might even come to the unbeliever in here? That first you say, I've been looking down a lot right now. I've been just looking around and, and not being satisfied and, and feeling like I'm doing all this and God's not coming through. Well, the first thing you're doing wrong there is you're looking down because grace requires you to look up. Look to Him. Because he's the source of grace in your life. If you need it this morning, he's there with it. And it does come to you in a message. It comes to you in the promises, all the promises he has for you, believer in Christ. And then it does come to you in power. That When you read those promises he has for you this morning, in the situation you might find yourself in, what cuts through all of it is he has the power to renew your mind and renew your heart, to put your faith back where it needs to be, in him and in him alone.